Ephesians 1, chapters 11 to 13. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Amen. Now I'll turn it over to Pastor Mason for the sermon. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. So recapping last Sunday's message as we looked at the opening statements of the Apostle Paul with his message or letter to the church at Ephesus. One, he chose us in Christ because before the foundation of the world in verse 4. He chose us to be holy and to be blameless in his presence. Secondly, he predestined us as sons and daughters. And this is in verse 5. He predestined us, one, through Jesus Christ, two, according to the good pleasure of his will. And that, that, that's the part that excites me, that, that it, 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 it gave God pleasure to choose us. Thirdly, to the praise of his glorious grace. And lastly, that he freely gave us this in Christ. The next few verses actually tie us into the scripture for today's message. So let's read carefully these verses from verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. And there we go again. I love that. According to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ Jesus. And then we go to the verses 11 you know, to 13, which was read by Sister Linda. So three points that can be shared this morning from these scriptures that were read, uh, redemption in Christ, the plan of the Father, and the guarantee of the Spirit. The redemption we have in Christ, the plan of the Father, and the guarantee of the Spirit. 
So with the redemption of Christ, in Christ we have the redemption through his blood. We have noted in prior weeks that the word redemption literally means to purchase or to buy back. We have used the illustration of soda bottles or can, you know, those redemption centers that actually buy back used, sometimes abused and refused soda cans and set them on a journey in a process that ends up with the cans being remade into brand new cans. That is a perfect picture of God's redeeming us, purchasing, buying us back. And we know that we are purchased not with silver, not with gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The scripture tells us that we are redeemed through his blood. That is, Christ has paid the price for our salvation. The price is his blood that he spilt on Calvary. Secondly, the forgiveness of sin. We have the forgiveness of sins. To forgive can mean to excuse. Oh, you know, forgive my ignorance. Well, you know, ignorance really is not something bad. It's just that you don't know something. So to forgive could mean to, you know, excuse. It could mean to overlook, but it could also mean to cancel, as in a debt, to stop feeling angry towards someone for a flaw or act. Have you forgiven your friend for deceiving you? Have you forgiven your friend or someone for that act, that vicious act against you? In other words, do you still harbor feelings of anger? If that's so, then you really have not forgiven. Now, God is a holy God, amen? amen. And he cannot stand in the presence of sin. He cannot stand sin itself. So for God to forgive, God is actually saying, I will cancel that debt that you owe. Because we are supposed to be holy as God is holy. But as the word of God tells us, we have all fallen short. We have all fallen short. No one, this the word tells us, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. And the, and the word, the, 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 the Greek word is, you know, for falling short is, is armatia. And I, I've used the illustration that it, 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 it's, it, it creates a, a picture in the mind of the readers back then of, uh, you know, someone, uh, an archer, um, pulling back and aiming for a target. But the arrow, instead of hitting the target, the arrow falls short of the target, Armatia, sin, falling short. We've all fallen short of the standard. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, there is, there is, there is judgment against us. There is judgment against that sin. There is anger from that holy God against that sin. But Christ became sin for us and our 
our, you know, um, our, our sin has been pardoned. So God has canceled that debt. And the feeling of anger towards us has just melted away because of Christ. Our debt has been paid. And God has no anger towards our, us as sinful creatures because his wrath has been poured out on Christ. As the scripture says, he, has became, he became sin for us. Thirdly, on this point, we have redemption and forgiveness according to his grace. The word according means as stated by or as stated in. For example, a usage of this word according, we could say, the outlook for the investors is bright according to the financial experts. The Oxford Dictionary gave that illustration. Or you could say the outlook of the investors is bright as stated by the financial experts. Now we can take this further. If you were a prospective investor and read or heard such a statement given by the financial experts, you would be inclined to go ahead and invest your money into whatever company, product, or scheme that they're talking about. However, if that statement is, was made by a person who is not a financial expert, for example, me, <laughs> the statement would not carry much weight. <laughs> and I would, I would advise you, please, if I, if, if I give you some financial, um, you, know, you, you know, some financial advice, I'm going to tell you straight off right now, you know, don't follow it. <laughs> Don't follow it. It's not coming from an expert. The statement would not carry much weight. A matter of fact, it might not be very believable to some people. So we can say that the source gives credence to the message. Let me say that again. We can say that the source gives credence to the message. If the source is a, in a financial expert, then the message then is believable. The message then could be accepted. For this reason, check out the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament are called the gospel, the gospel according to St. Matthew. The gospel according to St. Mark, the gospel according to St. Luke, and the gospel according to St. John. It is not the gospel of some dude down the street. It's not the gospel according to some nobody. The source of the message gives credence to the message. If the gospel according to you know, it's, it, it's the gospel according to an apostle of Christ. One who walked with him, talked with him, prayed with him, saw his miracles, saw his suffering, saw his death, saw his resurrected body. Yes, the source gives credibility to the message. 
So the application or message here is that we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins according to or as stated by the riches of his grace. Wow. The riches of his grace is the source. I am not the source. You are not the source. Nobody living or nobody who has ever lived is the source. If that were the case, the message would be meaningless. It would be worthless. But the source is the riches of his grace. So, you know, we can ask what's, what's grace? So let us briefly look at, you know, to understand grace, I would like us to look at mercy. Because understanding one without the understanding the other can sometimes lead us astray. Because these two concepts are often paired together in scripture. We hear about mercy and grace. The mercy and grace of our Lord. I greet you, you know, you know may the mercy and grace of our Lord be with you. Mercy and grace. So let's hear the distinction. Compare and contrast. Mercy is God not giving to us what we deserve. Mercy is God not giving to us what we deserve. This is usually spoken within the context of judgment. We deserve death. But God is merciful and he does not give us death. That's mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is God giving to us what we do not deserve. This is usually spoken within the context of salvation and spiritual blessings. Because we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve eternal life. But God gives us grace. He gives to us what we do not deserve. That's grace. Very different from, from, from mercy. Mercy is God withholding or not giving to us what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. But he holds it back. That's mercy. Grace is the other side of the coin. God is giving to us. What we don't deserve. So a few years ago, we had some students in our school who worked for themselves. They had worked up for themselves a reputation of being troublemakers. Now, some of you who I have, you know, had conversations with know that I, I would say that I'm a very good baker. But I'm not going to say that to give myself credit. I'm going to give one person and one person alone credit. I'm going to give Agnes Mason credit. That's my mother. Because from the time I was about six, seven, or eight years of age, I was in the kitchen helping her bake. And yes, she did send me some you know, handwritten recipes. So my, my, my muffins have sort of a, given me a reputation at school. Kids love him. 
So I have the practice of baking muffins for students, individual students, sometimes classes, who are exceptional in their academics or maybe in their behavior over a period of some days. So these students, two of them, as I mentioned, we could call them Larry and Mo. <laughs> but these two, these two young men had gotten themselves a series of detentions. And they were on the verge of entering into the arena of suspension. <laughs> and for a two-week period after that, Neither of them got a detention. During this time, some students from another class had done something, had done quite well in behavior and had gone above and beyond what was expected of them. They had actually volunteered to help a teacher clean her classroom and had done a few other things reflecting selflessness. The report came to me Heard it through the grapevine, and I made muffins for them. The two troublemakers saw these kids eating muffins and, of course, knew that it came from Mr. Mason. So they came to me and said, hey, Mr. Mason, we haven't gotten a detention. I informed them that they did not get a muffin in the last two weeks because... They, they didn't get, uh, sorry, they didn't get a detention in the last two weeks, actually because I had asked the teachers to exercise a lot of mercy on them. So it wasn't so much that their behavior had somehow miraculously just gotten so much better. Didn't want the guys to get a suspension. So I asked the teachers to give, give a lot of mercy So the boys had not received from the teacher what, in fact, they had deserved. <laughs> the boys had received mercy. Also, if I gave them muffins, it would not be based on the merit of their behavior because they had failed even though they had received mercy. They still kind of completely misunderstood the concept behind my muffin giving. First, they were not going to get muffins because they did, in, at least in their minds, what was actually expected of them. I mean, students are expected to behave well. Isn't that so? So, why should I reward you for doing the very thing that you're expected to do in the first place? Secondly, they thought that their good behavior in their mind was work and that my muffins were payment. <laughs> Wrong. Even the students who do exceptional work cannot look forward to or demand muffins as payment or reward for their work. The muffins are a free will gift given sometimes in spite of who the students are, in spite of what they did. So the boys, yeah, they receive mercy in that they were not punished in those two weeks by teachers when they actually deserved to be disciplined. And yes, 
they did receive muffins, not at that particular time, but a couple days later. That was like receiving grace because they didn't deserve. They didn't deserve, but they got it. That's grace. That's grace. So we look at the plan of the Father and then the guarantee of the Spirit. The plan is made with pleasure, verse 9 tells us. And he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. The plan is made with pleasure. That to me is an amazing statement that God is, is, is making his plan. And as he's making his plan of salvation, he's just smiling. He's just, you know, you know one, of the, one of the most tedious parts of teaching for me. I don't know about you, teacher, but one of the most difficult parts of teaching is creating the lesson plans. I, I, I'll be honest, I hate it. I, 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 I really don't like it. But there are some times when I am creating a lesson plan and I'm thinking about a particular student. So I, I, I'm doing the differentiated lesson plan now. So I'm thinking about students who, you know, are, are not in the bulk of the student body. They have some kind of a disability. They have some kind of a challenge. And, and, and I'm changing that lesson plan. I'm, I'm tweaking it. I'm tweaking it. And I'm, I'm, I'm tweaking it for that particular student. And, 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 and there's a little bit of excitement that, that comes into me. There's a little bit of, of joy that comes around. Because I know I'm, I'm tweaking it for that particular student. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he'll understand it this way. And there's excitement. There's joy in my heart. Because I know I'm going to be helping that one, that one particular student. And I'm thinking of God making his plan of salvation. And the plan is made with pleasure. My goodness. And he's saying, yes, I am going to be saving this one. And no matter how much she struggles, no matter how much, you know, her, her upbringing was, was, was awful. And she... And, and she had, she, you know, she had experienced abuse or she had experienced this or that. But God, I am, you know, God is going to bring her around and God is going to infuse that faith in her. And she's just going to, oh, and the end thereof is eternal life. And that gives the father pleasure. Wow. And I think of my own life. And I grew up in a Christian home. But at the age of 15, I lost what I call my earthly idol. I lost my earthly father. And that embittered me. And I swore, I swore by his grave. I swore, I was so angry. I was angry at God. I was angry at the church. I swore that I would never, ever enter the doors of a church again. I was done with church. I was done with God. But God had his plan. 
And as he was working his plan according, you know, as he was working his plan for me, God was smiling because God, God was saying in his, in his own mind, yep, 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 I can see you going through this, but that's going to make you turn to me. I can see you going through this, but that's going to make you humble yourself before me. And God used a, a young man that I later found out was actually... Um, you know, afraid of me. And no, I wasn't a big dude, but I was a violent little kid filled with anger, filled with anger. And, and God laid me on his heart and he hounded, tenderly, but he hounded. He hounded for, for more than a month almost every day at school, hounded me. And he would always leave with these words. Remember, remember, Patrick, God loves you. And, 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 and he would walk away. Remember, God loves you. And I, I, started, I started to you know, hear those words, hear those words repeatedly. Some people would have given up one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. It might even have been more than a month. Because there was an evangelistic crusade going on at his church. And, and for three weeks, he hounded me to, be, you know, to come to his church. And I told him, nope, 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 nope. D don't want to do anything with church. And that was two years after my father died. I had not been to church. I had stuck to my, you know, and, and I, I got tired. I got tired of this young man. I got tired of him. And, and so what I said was, you know, oh, he, he, he prides himself in being a man of his word. I'm going to use that against him. <laughs> and he came to me. I said, Ruddy, stop. I said, Ruddy, stop right there. I said, I know what you're going to do. You're going to invite me to your church. And yes, you told me yesterday that this week is the last week. So, here's a deal I'm going to make with you. If I come to your church, if I come to your church on Friday, on one condition, I'll come to your church on one condition. And he says, what's that? I said, I'll come to your church if you never invite me to church again after that. Yeah, he, he kind of rubbed his chin. And I smiled as he stretched out his hand to shake my hand. And he said, deal. I said, deal. And I said, I walked away and I said to him, I got you where I want you. Little did I know that God was looking down from heaven saying, Oh no, son, I got you where I want you. Because <laughs> I entered that church not knowing the heavenly father. I left that church as a son of God. Amen. Mm. And God said, I got you where I want you. And Ruddy never had to invite me to church again, ever. He kept his word. Amen. 
The plan is made with pleasure. The plan of God leads to the coronation of Christ. Verse 10 tells us, as a plan for the fullness of time to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in Christ. Here's what that means. God wants to bring all things in heaven and on earth to be unified in their thoughts, to be unified in their decision, to be unified in their proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the plan. For the word of God tells us that everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything even under the earth, will every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the plan. Leads to the coronation of Christ. And the plan is by God's will. According to the plan of him who works out everything by the counsel, by the counsel of his will. That God's working that God's plan is his will it, it it is his will that is being formulated it it is his will that is being experienced by us right here right now God's plan is his will and then finally the guarantee of the spirit and in him having heard and believed the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promise. Holy Spirit, who is the pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The NIV puts it this way. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The New Living Translation puts it this way. The Spirit is God's guarantee. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. So let's look at the meaning of the word guarantee. A guarantee is a formal promise or assurance, typically in writing, that certain conditions will be fulfilled, especially that a product will be repaired or replaced. if it doesn't meet a, specific, a specified quality or durability. A guarantee is something that gives a certainty of outcome. A guarantee is also a formal pledge to pay another person's debt or to perform another person's obligation in case of default. A thing serving as security for a formal pledge to pay another person's debt. 
Who has ever had a product offered to them with a lifetime guarantee? Yeah? Hmm. The company will fix, or so they say, the company will fix or replace the product with a brand new item for as long as you live. Wow. Amazing, huh? Lifetime guarantee. That's something. I remember asking such a company as they were trying to sell me a, a product with a lifetime guarantee. I, I, asked, I asked the representative of the company, uh, hold off, hold off, stop right there. Because I, 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 like I like to take things to the end. I like to push the envelope, so to speak. And that's good. It's also bad sometimes, but it's good sometimes. So I asked the representative of the company, okay, so what happens if the company goes bankrupt and shuts down <laughs> before I die? <laughs> so you, you're giving me a lifetime guarantee. You don't know when I'll die. I mean, I, I, I could die today. I could die tomorrow. I could die a, a month from now, a year from now. I could die 10 years from now, 15 years, 20 years from now, 25, 30 years from now. But what happens if the company goes bankrupt and shuts down before I die? Who will guarantee the fixing or the replacing of my product? I remember the person saying, well, well you know, we, we don't actually anticipate our company closing. <laughs> but that really did not adequately cover the real possibility of the company closing because the company could close and when it closes, what happens to my lifetime guarantee? <laughs> so the guarantee hinged on we don't anticipate our company closing or our company is not likely to shut down. Does that sound like a guarantee to you? Does that sound like a lifetime guarantee? So their lifetime guarantee is in reality should be understood as valid within the life of the customer or the life of the company. <laughs> In God's promise, God has given us not a lifetime, but an eternal guarantee. God has given us an eternal guarantee. Because God's company was from the, before the foundations of the earth, for God was God is and God will be. Amen. God is from eternity to eternity. For the word of God says, En arche was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. En arche, that's, that's from where we get the English word archaeology. From ancient. It doesn't even say, in the English we kind of mess it up and I hate this. I, I really do. We say, in the beginning. In the Greek, there is no, you know, there's no definite article. That's, that's the whole. 
is a definite article that, that is translated the. In the Greek, there is no definite article the. So it's not in the beginning. It says in beginning, in ancient, in eternity was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. God is. That's why God, when he spoke to Abraham, he said, I am that I am. Wow. And Jesus even recorded that. I am. I am the way. The truth and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am, you know, and he, keep, he keeps on and saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, you know, think about it this way. The word says that Jesus is the, is the perfect image of the Father. You can think of God doing a, a selfie. God taking a selfie, click, and when you see, when, when, it, when it comes out, you see, it's Jesus. He's the perfect image of the Godhead, amen. So you can think, technologically, you can think of God taking a selfie, and when it comes out, it's a picture of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is a seal. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. In ancient times, a seal or signet was an instrument, often metal or stone, with an engraved pattern or design on it. It would be pressed into a softer material, usually wax or clay, leaving an imprint with a stamp. A seal affixed to a document, a scroll, would have to be broken in order to unroll the document and read it. This meant it was in one way like today's tamper-resistant seals. Hmm. But it, it is also was used to verify the authenticity of who sent a letter especially in the case of the king because it would have the king's special stamp or seal on it similar to what we might use as a signature today however sealing had both literal and figurative uses things beside not just documents, but other things were sealed. Jeremiah, for example, sealed the deeds of the field which he bought from Hanumel as a symbol of formal, formal ratification of the transaction. In the more figurative sense, it could also be used for the act or token of authentication or confirmation or proof or security or possession. But when it comes specifically to this verse in Ephesians, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia suggests the intended meaning is a mark of ownership by God. So when you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, it is God saying, this is my child. This is my son. This is my daughter. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
God by his spirit indicates who are his. As the owner sets his seal on his property, just and just as documents are sealed up until the proper time for opening, so Christians are sealed up by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. No man can take us out of the hand of God. Amen. That I feel is, is a part of the gospel that is not emphasized. Because Christians go around anxious, anxious about, you know, about, about temptation, anxious about tribulation, anxious about persecution, anxious about the times when they don't feel, they don't feel like they're Christians. Come on, we've all, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> you wake up and for whatever reason, the psychology is in our minds and, and our minds are playing tricks with us and, 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 and we, don't, we don't sense, and when we say sense, we don't feel the presence of God. So, so we start to doubt if we're children of God. If that was the case, then... Actually, being a child of God would depend on feelings. I don't know if I would want to go there. Because that's not what the word of God tells us. So when you don't feel like you're a child of God, you need to dwell on the truth of God. You need to dwell on the scripture that God says, we're sealed. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and by sealing, God is declaring, this is my child, this is my son, this is my daughter, here is the mark. And just as a document is sealed up until the proper time for the opening, so Christians are sealed up by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, folks. We must know not only who we are, but whose we are. I'll say that again. We must know not only who we are, but whose. Whose. Amen. Say, who are you? Who are you? You can give me your name. You can tell me who you are. But the more important question is, whose are you? Who do you belong to? Amen. Who do you belong to? Yes, for a Christian, those two questions are in, in, intricately connected. But they are, as much as they are connected, they're separate. And I would want to leave this, you know, this, this point with you. Don't, don't, just, don't just be satisfied with knowing who you are. Understand. Accept it. You know, be blessed by it. Understand whose you are in Christ. Amen.
Let's spend some time in prayer.